Hi, my name is Alexandra Olsen. I'll be your host in this episode. Today, we'll hear about a disease that kills 30,000 women in the WHO European region every year, yet is preventable and treatable. We'll hear what elimination of this disease means and what needs to be done to achieve it. Today, we'll be talking about cervical cancer. Cervical cancer is a preventable and curable disease if it is detected early and treated properly. That was Dr. Nino Brizzuli, director of the Country Health Program at the WHO Regional Office for Europe. As a gynecologist who has treated women with cervical cancer, Dr. Brizzuli witnessed firsthand the terrible experience people can have with the disease. Cervical cancer is a difficult disease with traumatizing effects. November 17th is Cervical Cancer Elimination Day of Action. It marks the second anniversary of the launch of the WHO Global Strategy to Eliminate Cervical Cancer as a Public Health Problem. In this episode today, I will be speaking to Alison Egbert, Advisor on Health Policy at WHO Europe. Alison, can you tell us what does it mean to eliminate cervical cancer as a public health problem and how can this be done? I think it's important to understand when we talk about elimination of cervical cancer, we're not talking about eradication. And I think that that is something that might not be clear to people. And elimination means that we get below a threshold of incidence. So that threshold for elimination of cervical cancer is below four per 100,000 women. Let's hear Dr. Bertulli talk about the targets that are set out in the WHO European region in order to eliminate this cancer. And Alison, feel free to comment on these. Our destination for the WHO European region for 2030 is to have 90% of girls fully vaccinated with HPV vaccine by age 15, 70% of women screened using a high-performance test by age 35, and again by the age 45. 90% of women with precancer treated. 90% of women with invasive cancer managed. There's a global strategy for elimination of cervical cancer, and we've adapted that to make it relevant to the European region. And it consists of three pillars, and those are vaccination, so vaccination with the HPV vaccine, screening, and treatment. So it's screenings and treatment of precancerous lesions and then treatment of invasive cancer and palliative care. All right. So let's talk about vaccination. As of 2020, 38 of 53 member states had implemented HPV vaccination in their routine immunization programs. But we want to see this included in national programs of every member states with effective communication strategies to achieve the 90% coverage target. Alison, could you tell me about the HPV vaccine? Who should get it? At what age? And is it safe and efficient? So we have a lot of evidence now on the HPV vaccine, and we know that it's highly effective in preventing HPV, um, which causes cervical cancer. 
So I think what's important to understand, you know, we really want to see this vaccine included in national vaccine programs. Families are very familiar with, you know, vaccines for their children. But what often happens is that vaccines for adolescents are less well-known and not as highly publicized. Children may not be attending um, physicians' visits as frequently at that age. So families are just less aware of the HPV vaccine and the benefits that it has and that it provides and the protection it provides against cervical cancer. Cervical cancer is a cancer that can be prevented through vaccination. Without vaccination, 80% of women and men will be infected with HPV at some point in their lives, usually before the age of 25. HPV vaccines are highly safe and effective in preventing transmission of the HPV strains responsible for cervical cancer, as well as for some cancers of the vulva, vagina, penis, anus and oral area. Let's move on to screening. I understand that one of the most effective screening programs in terms of health outcomes and cost is for cervical cancer. It's one of WHO's best buys for tackling non-communicable diseases, which means it's a very cost-effective policy. However, it's not available in all countries of our region. The percentage of women ever screened for cervical cancer in the region ranges by country from 11% to 100%. We need screening programs that are organized and not ad hoc to ensure that all of the necessary services are provided from early detection to follow-up. Alison, Dr. Brizzuli mentions that screening programs have to be organized, but can you tell us what an organized population-based screening program is and what is the difference between this and just opting to go for a screening test yourself? Sure. I think, you know, in general, we need to do a better job of explaining screening. I think it's important to understand that not all screening is equal. As you mentioned, for cervical cancer, screening is extremely effective, but it has to be as an organized program because screening is not a test. Screening is really a pathway. And in order for screening to deliver the benefits, it has to be connected from the screening to the diagnosis to the treatment. And if women or anyone doesn't have access to diagnostics and and treatment, then screening will never be effective. So if screening is done ad hoc and not as part of a program, you run the risk of it becoming simply a test. And then in the case of cervical cancer, women may not get the follow-up they need. They may not get the, you know, the callback for, you know, to confirm the diagnosis and they may not have access to affordable treatment. So that is something I think, you know, we have to make really clear. Just because we can do something doesn't make it the right thing to do. However, in the case of cervical cancer, screening is extremely effective when it is part of a pathway um, that with access to diagnostics and treatment. So the issue with screening is there's different methods of screening. There's different ways we can screen for cervical cancer. There's HPV DNA tests, which are considered the first choice, the first choice in in screening methods for cervical cancer. There's also um, cytology, pap smear-based screening. We, We really want to be sure that Screening for vaccinated and unvaccinated women begins at 30 years, so, and then it continues every five to 10 years for HPV DNA testing, which we you see as the primary screening test, or every three years 
when using cytology or visual inspection and continuing until age 49. So really, you know, you need to take you know, look at the population and ensure that different groups are getting this access to the screening they need when they need it. I understand that this is a topic that's close to your heart, that you have a personal experience you can share with us. I think, um, you know, my interest in public health really started when I was young, even though I wasn't working in the public health field. And I was due for a screening and I was living in another country where I was working and a friend of mine had never been for a checkup. And so I, you know, agreed that we would go together. Um, It was, I would say, a bit of a frightening experience. I wasn't in my home country. I didn't uh, speak the language completely fluently. And it was a bit traumatic. And very little was explained to me. But at the end of the procedure, I was given a document with a list of what they said with diagnosis um, that to me was a bit confusing and, and unclear and a list of uh, prescriptions. And I thought something was off, but they, they didn't refer me to anyone. They told me to purchase the medicines at the pharmacy, um, and, and that was it. And I happened to be going home about two weeks later, and I took, so I, I, I took the documentation home and had the doctor look at the results from the tests. Uh, she was very surprised. She reran tests and um, confirmed that, that what was on the paper was not correct. However, she did note something that was abnormal. And it's probably what was noted before. They probably noted something abnormal, but weren't sure what to do with it. So I was forwarded on, uh, referred for a colposcopy. And what was, then I was diagnosed with precancerous lesions. And that was followed by treatment. So this stuck with me because I, I thought, how many women may have gone for what they thought was a screening test and were given inaccurate results due to you know, the poor quality of the cytology and then may have developed cervical cancer and didn't have the opportunity I had to you know, have that corrected and, and treated. So uh, had I not, had mine not been corrected and had I not had access to um, treatment of the precancerous lesions, I would have developed cervical cancer. So this was one, you know, at that age, it was something that, you know, I, I pondered and really wanted to do something about. And eventually it led me to, um, to public health and to, to really focusing on women's cancers. Thanks so much for sharing your story. I think it's so important for women to hear such stories. I'll say something else. I think um, it's, I really think it's important to share our stories. I think there's a lot of stigma around cervical cancer. I think it is getting better. But at the time, I felt ashamed. Um, I didn't know that this was as common as it was. I didn't, I had never heard of HPV at that age. I had no idea until I started sharing with people how many other women I knew had had the exact same thing and had the exact same treatment. So I think that um, it's important to destigmatize cervical cancer and and to destigmatize HPV. Over 80% of the population carries um, HPV and we need to to recognize that. And we will only be successful in addressing this problem if we can talk about it more, if we can destigmatize it, 
and make it more normal to participate in screening and in vaccination. Across the region, there is huge social and cultural diversity and socioeconomic variance, and this affects how countries deal with cervical cancer. The chance of getting an early diagnosis, for instance, varies considerably. Five-year survival rates with cervical cancer range from 54 to 80%, and as much as 65% of the population has no access to palliative care services. Alison, what does this mean in terms of how WHO works with different countries across the region? Are the approaches very different? I think in, in the way we approach cervical cancer, again, we really need to get to a more granular level and understand uh, the the local issues and not just local, but the, the issues among the different populations within a, within a community because they have different approaches and the stigma is different. So this requires partnerships. We will not be successful unless we partner with organizations who understand what the issues are in the area they are working in, among the populations with whom they work. I think we really need to reach out to um, specifically, you know, cervical and, and cancer civil society organizations and non-state actors, um, work with clinicians, work with our country teams with our, and, you know, the ministries being our, our, our key partners to figure out how we can support them. What I, what I see in some countries is there isn't, you know, there's a limited capacity around messaging and communication. Uh, it, I think because, you know, for those of who, us who work in the field, sometimes we forget uh, we, what, other, what people don't know about it. And I think just the message that cervical cancer can be eliminated is still new for many people. I, it surprises me sometimes when I mention it and, and people ask me, we can, we can eliminate cervical cancer? Absolutely, we can do it. And, and we know we have the tools, we have the knowledge. And so now it's how do we better implement what we know works so that every woman, regardless of where she lives, has equal access to the knowledge, to the information, to the tools that can save her life and ensure she doesn't develop cervical cancer. And again, like I said, this is really through developing those strong partnerships and through sharing stories. It's identifying those organizations that work with survivors, helping survivors to become champions. I think seeing uh, these, these stories, it, again, really helps people relate and, and maybe hearing someone else's story might lead them to share a story with someone else or to talk about their own experience. You know, it, it helps more when you hear. We know that when people hear a story from someone they know, that helps them make a decision. So if we can encourage more women to talk about their experience in their community with trusted women or and this also requires, though, policies. You know, I, I want to be sure that this isn't just about what a what just a, what a woman needs to do. I think we need to ensure that women know, but we have to ensure that then the policies are in place so that they have access to those tools, so that vaccination is free and that screening is free and they have access to, you know, diag- accurate and affordable diagnostics and treatment. It's not enough to just tell women that we have the tools to eliminate cervical cancer if they don't have access to them. So then that is, you know, really putting it back to the role of policymakers to ensure that they make those tools available and that they inform the population that they're available and they ensure access to all eligible target populations, you know, whether it's vaccination or screening 
that they have access to those tools. And again, that those tools are followed up and part of a pathway and, and then, uh, you know, give them access to diagnostics and, and to, to treatment if necessary and to palliative care and supportive care. You know, and another piece of this is, is really around survivorship care. We can't just drop a woman once she's finished treatment. Um, there needs to be support for follow-up. Um, there's, you know, a lot of emotional issues that can follow up. There's physical, long-lasting physical aspects as well that we need to discuss and address. Some countries in the European region are already well advanced on the road to elimination. Others are just embarking upon this journey. Countries that have achieved real success include the United Kingdom, one of the early adopters, Sweden, where women have the option to collect their own samples via self-sampling as part of an organized screening program, and Uzbekistan with its high vaccination rates. Alison, could you tell us what lessons we have learned from countries that are further along the road to elimination? And what can some general advice be to countries that are just starting to tackle cervical cancer? I think we can definitely learn there's some countries that have done really well with vaccination and with screening. I mentioned earlier that the experience of Sweden with uh, self-testing of HPV DNA testing, uh, that should be looked into and, and figure, and we should look at how that can be shared. Um, when it comes to achieving high rates of vaccination, of course, again, we've seen that more within countries of the European Union, not all countries, but what was, what happened in those countries and how can we share that? To, um, but I think it's through creating these sub-regional networks and linking our partners in those countries so that they can learn from one another about what works. What we need to do is, is better understand what those countries did. What we do know is, is by making vaccination part of the national immunization program, that's the first step. That's, you know, that has to happen. And then, but, but just making it part of the program is not enough because if people don't know that it's part of the national immunization program, they won't get it. So it's making it part of the national immunization program making it widely known and promoting it and ensuring also that your primary care providers are on board because in some countries we see fear and concern among the providers. Um, we even see sometimes they recommend against it and that needs to be addressed because we have the evidence to prove and, and you know, clearly demonstrates that it is effective um, and so where do we, where we need to, we need to make sure that the providers are aware of that and that they're advocating for the vaccine. I think a good, good example, something, you know, that's very organic that we do want to support is uh, efforts that we've seen in Slovenia to really um, promote cervical cancer elimination. And what we're seeing is, you know, even partners, countries around Slovenia looking to Slovenia um, on their own to see what they can do and learn from the, what Slovenia has done. So I think, you know, using that model in other regions, you know, and, and helping to facilitate, we can do more, I think, to facilitate the connections between those countries, between the focal points in the ministries um, and between our own country offices where they, where we do have country offices to, to facilitate that, that lessons, the sharing of lessons learned and experiences.
Thanks so much for joining this episode, Alison. While many countries and healthcare services experience backlogs as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic, progress is being made in introducing the HPV vaccine for the first time in some countries and increasing coverage in countries where it has already been introduced. There's also increasing awareness among the public and policymakers that cervical cancer is a preventable disease and that screening and vaccination represent WHO best buy interventions, which means they are really good investments. I'll let Dr. Nino Brizzuli give a summary of what needs to be done now. We have the tools and knowledge to eliminate the cancer. What we need is commitment, political will, and collaboration to make it a reality. If we can ensure high uptake of HPV vaccination and quality organized screening programs, we will be on track to eliminate cervical cancer. A cervical cancer-free future is within our reach. Let's mark the day and remember that no woman should die from a cancer that is preventable. Many thanks to Alison Egberg and Dr. Nino Brizzuli for their interventions in this episode. Thank you for listening to Health in Europe. Find other episodes of the podcast on your favorite podcast platform. Stay tuned for new episodes and stay healthy.